this week on The Futurists. As a sci-fi author, could you possibly have envisioned a world where there'd be a global pandemic and fires and floods and all this biblical stuff going on that locks us down at home and actually makes us afraid to touch other people? I mean, it's very much reminding me of some of the stuff in Dune. That we have the, the movement's called the Butlerians, the, the anti-technology, anti-science. I've learned since that it's sort of an apocryphal story, but the when Galileo was seeing the moons going around Jupiter and he could right. see them with his telescope and he was showing them to the cardinals of the Catholic Church, and which at the time their teachings were, no, the Earth is the center of everything, so there couldn't possibly be moons orbiting anything else. Right. And, and he showed through the telescope, the cardinals, to look at the moons going around Jupiter. And they looked through the telescope and said, nope, I don't see anything. Welcome to The Futurists, where we meet and talk to the people who are envisioning and inventing the future. I'm Rob Tersick. And I'm Brett King, and our objective here is to find the most intelligent uh, people talking about the future and figuring out how we can get to that place uh, as fast as possible. That's what all futurists really want. We want to get to the future as fast as possible. So in in that vein, we've invited a phenomenal futurist, uh, but more probably known in the creative aspects as a science fiction author, a New York Times bestselling author. I've lost count of the number of New York Times bestsellers he's had but kevin j anderson welcome to the futurists hello guys and and to be honest i've kind of lost count too you just i I work all the time and i publish books and i tell a new story and and uh by the time a book comes out and hits the bestseller list i've done six books after that and i'm working on it so um your your wikipedia is helpful because it says that you've published more than 140 books and more than 50 of those have been bestsellers and you've got a whopping 23 million books in print. That's pretty substantial. You're a prolific guy. Yeah, well, I I keep busy. And I if, if I'd stop writing, my head would explode. So all these these ideas and short stories. And see, my, my outlet for all these crazy ideas is to put them into stories. Because a story is almost like a thought experiment for... A crazy idea. So I could I could write a technical paper and put it out to some obscure audience. But I'd rather project a, an imaginary story where, what if this happens? And then you just show the, of course, as a science fiction writer, our, our favorite phrase is, but something went wrong. And then you just take <laughs> it from there. But that's a really useful starting point because one of the key techniques for projecting into the future is to do scenario planning. You know, scenario planning is a fancy way of saying storytelling, where we think about situations, including what might go wrong. And so you've got a great deal of experience doing that. And and you do it in an interesting way in the sense that much of your work, Kevin, has been collaborative, where you're working with somebody else's story franchise, whether that's Star Wars or the Dune franchise, which we're certainly going to talk about today because that's coming out soon. And also you've worked with other writers. You've been a collaborative author, a co-author with a number of different writers. And I've noticed you also do, do fan fiction as well. And so you've got a great deal of experience in collaborative scenario planning. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, and I'm I'm going to actually spin off on a tangent, which which none of you has heard before. So it's it's an interest. So for 14 years, I worked as a technical writer for the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is a big uh, government nuclear weapons design facility. I had a security clearance, and I worked with in some of like the main the main offices where um, 
I was writing, uh, do you remember, remember Star Wars and Brilliant Pebbles and all the uh, the missile defense things in the 80s? I was actually doing some of the documentation for that. So um, to get to, in a long rambling way to my, my point, there was another entire division in the office building where I was in, where they were the scenario planners. They were they were doing their, um, you know, the war gaming and, and what if what if this happens and what if this happens? And at the time, I was writing these big, epic, like Tom Clancy, Fall of Civilization things, political clashes, uh, with a with a co-author, Doug Beeson, who was a PhD physicist, a colonel in the Air Force. And the two of us would, would come up with these scenarios, and then we'd write a book about it, and we'd come up with another one. And one day, in, because and I, I had already started publishing novels, so people at work knew that I was a, a writer. And one day at work, one of these guys from the Wargaming Scenarios people came up to me like super, super proud because he and his team of 10 people had spent six months developing this two-page scenario about well, what if this happens and this happens. And he wanted my opinion. And I read it and I went, well, that's pretty good. And I gave it to him. And I thought, man, Doug and I do this in like two hours. And <laughs> so you just sort of like imagine things and go. And, right, right. and it it is... We watch the news all the time, which is as, as horrific as any post-apocalyptic <laughs> novel sometimes. But to get more to the point of, of your question, Robert, that I feel that ideas work best when you're bouncing them off of people. It's sort of like it picks up energy when it ricochets, sort of like a, like a Super Bowl or something like that. There are other writers I know of who are very... Um, uh, play it close to the chest. They don't want to tell anybody what they're working on. They don't want to show anybody. Uh, but to me, it's more like a jazz performance that everybody's up there and everybody knows what they're doing. And and if you've seen some great uh, jazz ensembles, it's all improv. They just go and they know how to work with each other and it builds and it, the synergy comes up. Uh, and so, you know, specifically, we're talking about uh, Dune, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Brian Herbert and I just finished our first draft of... I think it's our 17th Dune novel in the past wow. 20 years. Uh, and it's called The Heir of Caladan. It's the third book in a trilogy that all... It's like the year before the, the classic novel Dune. So it ends right before Dune starts. And Brian and I, um, we would meet together face-to-face, -to -face, although with COVID the last year, we've had to do it all by Zoom, which is, um, you know, it, we do it, but it's much better to be sitting there um, on his deck, just sort of throwing ideas back and forth about yeah. what about this and what about that. And you have to be with somebody you trust because you need to have somebody who's a good filter who just says, no, Kevin, that's stupid. And then we throw it out. We do something else. You have to be in a position where, where there's honesty and in feedback where you can really just, no, let's not go there. That's and the I've biggest argument for collaboration. It makes a good deal of sense, right? Because everybody's got blind spots and it's easy for us to see other people's blind spots, but it's impossible to detect our own. And if you're doing scenario planning, you want to have as many viewpoints as you can just to, yeah. to make sure you're not missing something. So that makes a good deal of sense. Uh, one yeah, other thing, that. Robert, you, you, you probably don't know about how Kevin actually does the writing process often is he dictates it to a dictaphone. Oh, while he's out hiking the Colorado hills, and then uh, I, I find this astonishing as as an author myself, and and you as well. I I I I, I don't know how he does that. It's it, like keeps the plot lines and everything in his head. That's talk talk about it, Kevin. You know, like how does that actually work? 
Well, I mean, I, one fundamental thing that I do as a writer is that I outline everything very carefully. I've got like a Dune novel with Brian, uh, like the era of Kaladin right now. It has, I think, 75 chapters in it, 74 chapters, right. something like that. So we have a full outline where we know chapter one is Duke Leto's point of view and this happens. And chapter two is Lady Jessica's point of view and this happens. And chapter So we, we've sat face to face and we've brainstormed and we've talked out this whole book and we've, we've crystallized it down into the exact story that we want to tell. So we, we both have the same vision of this, this book. And then we split the chapters half and half. Um, ah. and we pick it by storylines. Like I'll, uh, in, in this particular case, I did the Duke Leto storyline and he did the Lady Jessica storyline and, and I'm doing the Baron Harkonnen storyline and he's doing the Paul Atreides and Duncan storyline and that, that whole thing that, so we split it up. And so I know the chapters I'm supposed to write. And I know right. today I'm writing chapter 34 and chapter 37. And I have a little paragraph. This is chapter 37. And this is, and I know basically, you know, it, it's sort of a beat points. I know what's going to happen in that chapter. And then I go out on the trail. There are some, we have many, many like grueling hiking trails, but there's also lots of, you know, bike trails and level, uh, level things where I can just, walk and there have been many studies showing that your creativity increases when you when you have physical activity that if you're actually moving and doing something that your imagination can flow better so if you're just sitting there with your butt in the chair staring at a screen um it's almost like you've got constipation it's hard to 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 get things out and also in in today's world sitting in my office i am pray to the phone ringing and the doorbell ringing and the cats wanting attention and and all kinds of things but if i'm out on the trail and i'm and i'm a very strong hiker i'll go 10 miles out somewhere i'll go on and on and on and not see anybody so i can just get into this zone and it's the same as typing i'll think up a sentence but instead of thinking up a sentence and moving my fingers to type something i think of a sentence and it comes straight out my mouth and i'm sure we've all met people that just have things come right out of their mouth without any sort of filtering mechanism <laughs> whatsoever uh and so i i'll go out and and just hike many miles and i'll dictate today's chapters and i that way i get to do my two loves i i'm living in this beautiful state in the Rocky Mountains, I get to go out and be surrounded by uh, scenery and and see. Brett, you're doing nonfiction, so it's not as important. But in in um, in fiction, there's well, I have to do the world building and the how does it smell and how does it yeah. look yeah. and how does it sound and and well, talk it, a bit about that if you would, Kevin, because that world building aspect is real really important. It's really pertinent to what we're trying to cover in this especially show, especially when you've got such sacred cows and yeah, structure with, to it. How do you like? How do you rules, set those rules? Do you like list out all of the rules of each universe at the start of the book so you've got your head straight, or is it from memory? Well, I mean, there's not a, uh, like, I wish there would, somebody would do like a wiki of all my books so that I don't have to refer to everything, but I didn't even know I was going to get to plug this book. I've written a book called World Building from Small Towns to Entire Universes, and it's sort of got my, uh, it's sort of a checklist of all these different things that you have to think about when you're, and and we're talking like a full-on science fiction universe or full-on fantasy universe or something, Uh, but, but all the rules are the same with with just if you're setting a uh, see if if i were setting a story 
in you're in Thailand now, Brett. If I were setting a story in Thailand, correct. To me, that's a fantasy country. I mean, everything right, about right. it, the history, the 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 foliage, the culture, the the clothing, the cooking, the everything is a is a foreign opportunity for literally fantasy. foreign, yeah. a, a different different fantasy world to my American reading audience. But if I'm writing a story set in Denver, somebody who's living in Shanghai, to them, that's a fantasy world, too. And so I actually have this whole list of um, and I probably won't remember them all off the top of my head. But but the the climate, I mean, is it a a, does it have seasons? Is it is it a Pacific Island? Is it the northern? Is it it a tidally locked planet? Well, exactly. Some, well, Tidally Lock Planet, that's a huge, that means that there's no day or night. Right. Well, I mean, there's no, no alternating day and night. And, you know, we, we have seasons because our orbit is a little bit elliptical. If it was a perfectly circular orbit, you wouldn't have seasons. And imagine how your culture would change if you didn't have seasons. And think about just, just the cooking that, like in Thailand, there's a lot of very spicy stuff because it's a hot and humid climate and things spoil fast. So they need to put hot spices into it to to cut down on the food spoilage. But if you were like living up in the Arctic Circle, you would have things like preserved salted fish all the time and and seal blubber and whatever else that you can get. Uh, And then there's there's the education. Do the, I mean, if I'm writing a fantasy world, here's a couple of absolute major questions do they have gunpowder or not do they have education or not right i mean to think about does the average person read or not what about communications think of the lord, the lord of the rings if somebody could pick up the phone and call frodo and say get your butt moving and get that ring destroyed rather than sitting on on your thumbs for a year then the move then the story would move faster um, there, there are so many things. The, the I don't know if I mentioned religion or not, but um, architecture. Think of how Thai architecture looks different from uh, Norwegian architecture, which looks different from Moroccan architecture. It's because of the raw materials that they have. But also think about the, um, like, because Islamic uh, religion doesn't allow depiction of human figures, all of their artwork is different. But that means they've developed the most beautiful calligraphy and architecture and things and so as I'm you're thinking. developing a story all these details yeah. are are part of the story that you go go to so, so let me see if i can play it back because when we do scenario planning for thinking about the future uh we start with a process what we call it diverge we're trying to think about as many possible ideas sometimes as crazy as they might be right we start with that you want to go open but then you start to apply filters, and that's where you converge down to something that's a little bit more plausible. And it sounds like you have a similar process where you start out with a lot of creativity and a wide open you know, scenario, and then you start to apply these logical filters to to make sure that there's verisimilitude, so that the audience, the fans, can actually believe that this is a credible scenario. Is that similar to the way you're working? Well, right. And and as you come up and you start cursing yourself as you do more and more books in the series because you go why did i set that limitation it's the uh, but but to use dune as a perfect ex- example frank herbert's original dune they have it's not faster than light travel that's navigators that that have uh, holtzman engines right. that can fold space so they basically go in this ship from point a to point b because they dimensionally fold and go okay that's that's how they do things but here are the consequences. That means that there's no faster than light communication. So you can't be on the planet right. Dune 
and send a signal to the imperial capital and say something bad's going down here. You, you have to get send a part. messenger. You actually have to send a physical messenger wow. because the ship can go faster than a signal can, and and that you wouldn't believe how many headaches that's caused us writing it because we really want somebody to just make a phone call somewhere, but you can't because that's what the rules are. And once you set these rules, then you have to abide by them. And, you know, that's, we have these rules now, if I'm writing a, a, a cowboy story in the old West, I would really like to have like airplanes to get from one place to another. Well, well, you can't have airplanes from one place to another <laughs> yeah. because it, they have weren't invented yet. So you you follow these through, and there are there are consequences, and that's one of the things that I, I I think I do best in my fiction is instead of just taking here's idea A, you do here's idea A, and then what happens afterward, and then what happens after that, and what happens after that, because that the repercussions and the second and third order. Um, consequences are what I find the most interesting. Well, Kevin, uh, let's take a quick break. Um, uh, you're listening to The Futurists. I'm Brett King and Robert Turchek. We're the hosts of The Futurists. We're talking to Kevin J. Anderson. We'll be right back after these brief words from our sponsors. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Okay, so we're back in the Futurist with Kevin J. Anderson. No, not the South African tennis player. We're talking about the science fiction author. He's worked with great franchises like Star Wars and also most probably most relevant right now, Dune. Herbert Family has said is the, the definitive depiction of Dune. And you, you, you advised on that film. I know that that's one of the projects you worked on. But you also have a book coming out just before that, another book in the Dune series. Can you tell us about The Lady of Caledon? I could do better. I could show off because I've awesome. got this page here. Look at this. And then what's then what happens is somebody says, "But Kevin, this is a radio show." Uh, but but here's this is the second one, and uh, it's showing up. This is this is Dune, the Duke of Caladan. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we just finished the third one called the Heir of Caladan. That's our new. It's a whole trilogy. That's the, that's the year before Dune. So it's all these pivotal events as to how um, the Harkonnens got ousted from running the spice operations in Dune and the machinations of Emperor Shaddam IV and how House, House Atreides, which is a relatively backwater uh, noble family, how do they get the most powerful fief in the entire uh, Imperium? So it that's just, it leads you up to to what's going on uh, in, in, well, the movie and the novel, Dune. So uh, Brian and I have been working together. Um, our first Dune novel was called House of Atreides was published in 1999. So we've been working together for 21 years. And over those, those two decades, there have been many film things building up and then crash and then they go up again and then they'd crash. 
Brian and I were were consultants. We worked on it early on in the in the script process, and we helped him develop it. And we're uh, we are just so involved in the in the Dune universe, not just with our novels, but uh, we're very proud that last year we produced uh, a graphic novel adaptation of Frank Herbert's original novel. So it's a a scene by scene adaptation of of Dune. Uh, never been done before in comics, and and Abrams books did that. Uh, I know you mentioned earlier about creative collaboration and things. So Brian and I brainstorm, and I talked about that. But writing the the comic and the graphic novel, we've got uh, the artist and the colorist, and and we were from the very beginning. When we write a book, we kind of describe things, but I don't actually have to draw or model what one of the ornithopter ships looks like. But the artist has to know what it looks like because he's right. drawing it. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time doing um, conceptual sketches with the artists. And and what do the like when I'm writing a book, it's it's Paul and Duncan go do something. Well, the artist actually has to know what their shirt looks like, what their shoes look like, what their pants look like. And, you know, I don't pay that much attention to my own clothes when I put them on. So so yeah. developing these that that's an added focus of creativity that um i didn't have to do in some ways you and brian are the custodians of this legacy and and it really matters right people listening might think why does that stuff matter but the fans know right and the fans will jump on your case immediately if you get it wrong oh the 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 tiniest uh little inconsistency or glitch and uh and you know i'm a big star trek fan too i think a lot of a lot of you are and and star trek I, we we love it to pieces, but I think we have to admit that it's not 100% consistent all the way through from the <laughs> Captain okay. Kirk era to the... Um, but they, they try, and for Doom, we're really trying to keep it uh, as consistent as as possible and when we're, we're watching the canon from uh, both our books and Frank Herbert's books. When I think about Doom, one of the things, themes that, uh, one of the through lines, I guess, that makes it consistent from book to book or from episode to episode is that it's um, a story about power and also about nature and environment, power in environments, people projecting power, trying to control power. And it's all informed by deep history. This is one of the things that Frank Herbert really figured out is that you can write a story about the future. But that future has to come with its own history. Yeah. And so you know, they're all constantly referring back to it. That's important for our show, too, because a lot of folks, when they think about the future, fail to account for decisions that were made in the past. They're going to kind of constrain the future. In some respects, that's something you have to work within, too, when you're working on the Dune series. Well, and and Frank Herbert left this whole, I mean, he created this galactic empire science fiction universe, but it looks very medieval there are no computers there are no aliens right. there are dukes and barons and and emperors and and they live in castles and i mean the, the aesthetic of it yeah the aesthetic of it was um you know it was a great story but then you ask the question well why do they have dukes and castles and where did the computers go and and he developed this entire history about this massive a revolt against technology and overthrowing uh, mm. basically a a, a uh, tyrannical thinking machines that enslaved humanity and the humans uh, rose up and overthrew them and destroyed all the computers and they said they're never going to do that again. But then we need computers, so they've developed Mentats, which are like human computers with with super eidetic memories and and fast things. So basically, what 
the underpinnings in Dune is instead of using technology and crutches to help us uh, achieve great things, it's humanity itself that has evolved and improved itself to do the great things. Right. So the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, the, yep. the Mentats, the, the Navigators, these, these uh, they're mutated. The, the Navigators can foresee like every possible course through millions of star systems when they fold space. And, and it, it's, it's a unique thing instead of like, um, and again, I like Star Trek, but in Star Trek, the engineer always invents something that fixes what their problem is and they get out of it. Well, in in the Frank Herbert universe, it's the humans that find the solutions to it and use their own abilities to to solve things and also to screw things up completely. As a science fiction author who who thinks about scenarios and sometimes sometimes you're forced to think about the worst case scenario, tell me about the last two years, the last eighteen months or so. As a sci-fi author, could you possibly have envisioned a world where there'd be a global pandemic and fires and floods and all this biblical stuff going on that locks us down at home and actually makes us afraid to touch other people? Tell me about that scenario. Well, what I can tell you is if I wrote it, they would laugh at me. The critics would have exactly. trashed that novel. I mean, they they literally would have... We still... Um, Robert's in, in the U.S. And, and, and Brett's overseas, but we... Uh, we have this massive percentage of the population that is still flat out denying global warming. They're flat That's out insane. denying. There, there are people dying in our COVID wards with respirator tubes who are furious and saying that COVID doesn't exist as they're dying. They're they're refusing a vaccine that has gone to 1.4 billion people with virtually no no deaths and terrible. I mean. Yeah, 40, 40 recorded deaths from the vaccine rollout, and we're getting closer to 2 billion now. I mean, it's very much reminding me of some of the stuff in Dune. That we have the, the movement's called the Butlerians, the, the anti-technology, anti-science. The, the, uh, it, this, I've learned since that it's sort of an apocryphal story, but the, when Galileo was seeing the moons going around Jupiter and he could right. see them with his telescope and he was showing them to the cardinals of the Catholic Church, and which at the time their teachings were, no, the Earth is the center of everything, so there couldn't possibly be moons orbiting anything else. Right. And, and he showed through the telescope the cardinals to look at the moons going around Jupiter, and they looked through the telescope and said, nope, I don't see anything. No, I, I understand yeah. that may be an apocryphal story, but it's still an instructive story. So, um, I, I did want to ask you if I could for to, to go back to Dune history a little bit. Where does Jodorowsky's uh, Dune fit into all, all of sort of the creative timeline? It was obviously it didn't get into the movie, but there was a lot of really creative, interesting work done for it. Well, I to use since I've also written for DC Comics and those analogies, I'd say that Jodorowsky's Dune is in like Earth twelve. It's in an entirely different alternate universe right, somewhere. Right. Um, I did see the documentary about Jodorowsky's. Yeah, Dune it was and, fascinating. And yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating doc- documentary. The guy was filled with imagination. He had all kinds of stuff. And if he had actually made Dune, it would have been an absolute disaster. In my, in my opinion, <laughs> I, I, I think it would have been so so freaky and bizarre and and strange that uh, and we think that the david lynch movie is a bit strange and off jodorowsky's would have been so far off the deep end that's just that's just my opinion i i have 
and I will confess that I, I, I have not seen the finished version of the new movie and I'm, uh, I, I, because of NDAs and stuff, I can't really talk about it, but um, it, what I've seen and what they've released and the trailer, this, the, the new movie just really looks like they've captured Dune. So I'm, I'm very, very hopeful. Um, what what can, what other universes do you enjoy working in? Obviously, with seventeen uh, books that you and Frank have done, is it seventeen? You said right, Brian, uh, seventeen. We're on the seventeenth one, I think. Yeah. So um, obviously, you must enjoy the Dune universe. It works for you. But what other universes are are you particularly attached to? Well, and see the the thing is, as a writer and being creative, I, I don't. If I have to write the same kind of book all the time, day after day, year after year then it would feel like I'm actually working a regular job. So why would I want to right, do that? Right. Um, so I, I have my own, it's a massive science fiction universe called the Saga of Seven Sons. Yeah, uh, where one I of think my favorites. 13, 13 books in that now. I did a seven-book arc and then a, a sequel trilogy and some other things in that. So I developed that, and that's such a huge universe, and I love it. And I've just now finished a, a giant epic fantasy, kind of Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings thing uh, called Spine of the Dragon was the first one. Venge War, like Revenge War, was the second one. And the third one, Gods and Dragons, comes out in January. And so that, and that's fantasy. So there's magic and things in it. But magic still has rules, just like science does. You, you can't right. just have Gandalf saying, I'm going to do the spell of convenience now to do whatever it is the plot needs to do. Uh, so I, I spent a long time developing that history of the magic system and the races and the maps and all that sort of thing. And then just to be very quirky, um, I have a, a ridiculous, humorous uh, horror mystery series about a, a continuing character who is Dan Shamble zombie PI. And it's sort of like yeah, uh, yeah. the naked gun, uh, Sam Spade. And it's a, a quirky noir with uh, he's, he's a private detective and he's a zombie and he solves crimes with werewolves and ghosts and mummies. Uh, and that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Since I finished writing the, the air of Caladan with Brian, big, huge Dune serious stuff. I, I'm going into this universe, the Dan Shamble universe, because it's just so quirky and, and frankly, ridiculous and stupid. It's kind of like the Adams Family or the Naked Gun or uh, any of those that might might be resonant to people. So it's I I just love writing. I love telling stories. Um, I I have worked a real job. I think I'm unemployable if I were to stop writing. Um, but I, I really do enjoy it. I play with my my characters, I develop their worlds, and then I torture the characters and destroy the world. So it's uh, that's my job as a writer. Um, I did did want to ask you what was it like writing with L. Ron Hubbard? Well, I didn't actually write with L. Ron Hubbard, okay. so it's uh, so. Uh, but you've got I, a book credit together. I've got a book credit. I, I've got let's see, for now it's almost thirty years. Uh, I I've been a judge for the Writers of the Future contest, which is a, a, a very successful international uh, writing contest that L. Ron Hubbard endowed before he died. He left a, a large chunk of money to fund this concept, contest. And uh, actually, Frank Herbert was one of the judges. Brian Herbert is one of the judges. Um, uh, let's see, Greg Benford, nice. um, Anne McCaffrey was... Wow. 
Um, uh, Todd McCaffrey, her son, is one of them. Uh, there, and Jody Lynn Nye, Nancy Kress, they're major science fiction writers are, are judges in this contest. Uh, and obviously, L. Ron Hubbard died in 1980-something, 4, 85, something like that. Uh, and his publisher, uh, who also manages the, the contest, they had found an old movie script that L. Ron Hubbard had written back in the late 50s or early 60s. And obviously they were eager to have like a new book for them to publish. And so they asked me to take this old movie script to his and novelize it. And actually it is, it's quite funny. It's like a spy versus spy uh, about people, um, an evil uh, rebel South American dictator who happens to look exactly like this very straight laced um, uh, upper crust CIA operative. And they, they both look exactly the same. And of course, circumstances happen so that they switch places so that the straight laced guy, everybody thinks he's the rebel leader. And, and uh, our, our subtitle is when intelligence goes wrong. And uh, it, it was, uh, so I worked on that. It, it was a lot of fun. I, I filled it in and then it was published. And that actually is how I, I earned my Guinness world record that when they, when they launched that book, they it just the, the massive publicity campaign that I, I mean, I've never had anything like this. And we had a book signing down in Hollywood. They shut down streets. They, they gave, they had bands playing, they gave out free banana splits. And I signed thousands <laughs> and thousands and thousands of hardcovers wow. that night. And that gave me the, the first Guinness world record for the largest book signing ever. So that's um, amazing. So, so that's my experience writing a book that that I share credit with L. Ron Hubbard. So I can tell you it's, <laughs> no, that's it's, an amazing it was story, a lot of fun, dude. if you ask me. Cool. You know, um, Kevin, we had a chat briefly and, uh, and we were talking a little bit about COVID. And, and, and one of the things that's so surprising to me about the COVID outbreak and the subsequent uh, social unrest and so on, from my perspective, it was very predictable. Uh, you know, people act like it was something nobody could have expected and nobody knew that this could happen. But in fact, for 20 years, people we have been saying there's going to be an outbreak. There's going to be another pandemic. It's probably going to be a coronavirus. It's probably going to come from Wuhan. It'll probably come from a bat in a cave. You know, like that level of precision was available. And in fact, even just a year before the, the initial outbreak, there was some speculation about that. And so I guess one of my things I'd ask you for is some advice for our listeners. Um, how can we think better about the future? How can we think more athletically about the future? Well, and and here, I, and I, I get exactly what you're saying. And as a science, my, my undergrad degree is in physics and astronomy. And as a science guy, I, I get all these predictions and I understand that science isn't always right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there are other people that think if, if the CDC says something, it must be forever true and never changed. And then when the CDC modifies their, their things, then they feel like they've been lied to or they've been cheated. And why can I believe anything that they're saying? But, but I think the main point that I want to do is it's the, the boy who cried wolf syndrome. And we have been warned for decades. But the problem is we've been warned about the uh, the bird flu, or the swine flu. The we've been warned about these things over and over again. That compared to COVID, kind of fizzled. They didn't really turn out to be worldwide walking dead zombie apocalypse kind of plagues. And so when we're told 
the the avian flu, it's going to wipe out the entire population of the earth and it doesn't happen. And then we're told again that the next one is going to wipe out. Yeah. So then when it finally does happen, we go, oh, well, somebody cried wolf five times and we didn't take it seriously. It's it's the same thing with the weather report. How many tornado watches do you get and you never see a tornado? Yeah. Um but you don't want them to not do the tornado warning exactly. just in case. But you get to the point where you go, oh, I've heard this before. There's nothing, nothing big with it. And well, I, I part of that is because people have a misunderstanding between a prediction and, and a projection or a probability, right? When they talk about the weather, they're talking about probabilities. And there's always a plus or minus in accuracy, right? right? Uh, but most people don't get that concept. They think a prediction is a certainty, and it's just not possible to make certain predictions. That's not, you, you can't do it. <laughs> well, and, Listen, and I do kind of as a, as a side note, though. So I just just last weekend, as we're recording this, just last weekend, I went to my first big Comic Con convention in a year and a half, um, and it was in Kansas City, which which was a fairly hot spot for the Delta variant, and and. Everybody used the precautions we hoped for. Everybody in the hotel was masked. Everybody in the convention center was masked. Everybody on the airplane was masked. And we all did our thing. But as I was standing there at my booth and I was signing autographs and I was I was talking to the fans and I was all day long with this mask on, and I believe in them. I'm not anti-masker, yeah. but I hate it. it I mean, gets it, wearing. It, it, really, yeah. it really is inconvenient. So you can understand why why people would be, we just want this magically over. So, um, but that's not going to happen. We've got to figure it out. So anyway, I I just, we could rant on on COVID for a while. That'll get you a bunch of hate mail. I think that's, that's how you do it. Yeah. No, we, we, uh, we, well, um, as you know, I've, I've talked about the, the impact of some of this in the new book as well, but um, where can people find, because we just got to wrap up in a couple of minutes, where can people find the lady of Caladan and, and more information on the book? Well, the Lady of Caladan, um, it it's available. All where books are sold. If you got Amazon in your country, or uh, my own publishing house, Wordfire Press, is doing the UK edition. Uh, Random House is doing the Australian edition. Uh, it should be easily uh, available. Or uh, the first book, The Duke of Caladan, is out now. Uh, my own website is Wordfire, like words on fire, wordfire.com. And there are some links on there. There's also a dunenovels.com, which has a bunch of Dune information, and we just hope you'll check it out. I've got a lot of books to read, so, yeah. so pick one. Where do you stay in touch with your fans? Um, it, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, I've got I've got Twitter, which is the word the, and then my initials the KJA, uh, and on Facebook, just look for the official Kevin J Anderson page. That's where I, I do my like daily interacting for for conversations. Um, we have a newsletter and stuff like that too, but it, but. Check me out on social media and there will be breadcrumbs for you to follow other places. Well, Kevin J. Anderson, um, award-winning author, New York Times bestseller, Guinness Book of World Record holder. Um, Thank you. Dune, The Lady of Caladan is out now wherever good books are sold. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Well, great to be talking to both of you guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kevin. We'll see you in the future. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. 
And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.